Hey, this is Travis Bennett, the pastor here at Arena of Life Church, and I just want to welcome you to our podcast. I pray this builds your faith, encourages you, and brings you to newer levels in Christ. Enjoy the message. All right. Glad you're all here tonight on this dark Wednesday night. Time change, don't you just love it? <laughs> no, I don't either. Sorry. But it's what we got to deal with, isn't it? All right, well, let's start our Bible study with a word of prayer, and we'll get right into the study tonight, okay? Well, Father, we just thank you for the day. Father, we thank you for the blessings that you give us each and every day, for the weather that's been great, Father, for even though it's windy and overcast today, Father, it's still great, and we thank you for it, and we thank you for the rain that we've had recently. We thank you, Father, for watching over us and taking care of us, Father, for bringing us back to this place in the middle of the week to set in your presence under your, under the authority of your word and to learn something tonight, Father. I pray, Holy Spirit, I, I just pray that you'll instruct us and guide us tonight. Teach us all things that you want us to learn tonight. Instruct us, help us to understand, help us to walk away from this place uh, profitable in the word of God. And Father, thank you for your word that shows and reveals so many things about you, about your purpose, uh, purposes for uh, all of us, at all the things that you've done for your, for your purpose from the time you created the universe to the time you created each one of us and, and the process of your redemption that you reveal in your word to us, Father. We thank you so much for that. Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you, Father, for your healing power. And, Father, we just lift up those that are not here because of sickness or wherever they might be. We, we lift up those that are on our hearts that need healing in their bodies. Father, you know who they are, who that each one of them is. And, Father, their particular situation with their healing. And, Father, we lift them up to you, Father, and we pray for their situation to change because of our uh, standing in agreement, believing and trusting in you for your healing power and that each one would be healed and, and uh, restored and that everything that the devil's tried to steal from them, Father, will be restored fully and the devil will be put down in Jesus' name. Father, thank you for the time tonight. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your word. And thank you, Father, that we can be here and... and uh, in this place, the freedoms that we have in this country. In spite of everything that goes on, Father, we still thank you that you are the God who reigns, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I just got one. <laughs> well, we haven't done that. We're not going to do that tonight, but we'll... we haven't been doing that. But it is. This is my. We just, uh... anybody, anybody, um... what do you call it, uh, disappointed about the red wave? It's more like a red sprinkle, wasn't it? <laughs> well, things happen, you know, things change. And, and uh, you know, we just have to trust God that he knows best and he knows what's going on. There, nothing escapes him and everything that's hidden will be revealed and every secret will be uh, exposed. And so all these things, all we can do is put it in God's hands and say, thank you for what you did for us and thank you. And, you know, like I was uh, just, just kind of a side note before we start, I was, I, I know everybody was looking forward to seeing all the red across the United States of America. But I follow a, a Bible teacher by the name of Dr. Michael Brown. Several of you might might follow him. But I was reading about his, his, his take on the election yesterday, and he said, you know, he said we shouldn't be concerned too much about the red wave that didn't happen. But he said there is a red wave that's happening in the United States, and that's the Great Awakening. He said it's the red wave of the blood of Jesus going across the United States of America. And that's the one that's most important right there. And that's the one we need to be attentive to and pray about and uh, do our part in making that red wave happen in the great country 
of United States of America. So, all right, let's get into the study tonight. All right, we're still we're we're still uh, we're doing defending the faith. This is number four. Uh, we're we're still studying the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. Uh, that that's we started out with that. We had the intro, and then we got sidetracked. Not sidetracked, but we got off on another deal. I wanted to explain. Uh, a little bit about the uh, Trinity. But first of all, the Bible says we are commanded in 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give a defense and answer to the hope that is inside of you. Are you ready? Anytime you get confronted with that, to say something to somebody and say, this is why I'm, this is why I have hope. This is why I'm happy. This is why I can do these things and what Jesus has done for me. And then we're also exhorted in Jude 3, to contend earnestly for the faith. In other words, fight with all your strength to win. we got to fight, and we've always got to give a defense. So that's our two charges we have as we go into that. <clears throat> last week, or two weeks ago, uh, last week we, we weren't here, but we, I know uh, we all had uh, first Wednesday uh, services for the, for the month. So two weeks ago, a quick and brief study of what we believe uh, we, what we believe about the doctrine of the Trinity. And I left you with this quote, which I hope would would uh, hoped would help us see the true importance of the Trinity and not just the mechanics and linguistics of the, all that that we talked about. This was from B.B. Warfield. He said, the revelation of the Trinity was incidental to and inevitable and the inevitable effect of accomplishment of redemption, uh, the accomplishment of re redemption. And we, that we see that that's happening. In other words, when we talk about the Trinity, we see that everything was, uh, that the, the belief in what we believe in the Trinity is uh, these things that we talked about. We really need to see God's persistent self-revelation of himself showing the interrelatedness of each of the three persons of the Trinity in equality and in their distinct operational significance, most importantly, the function of the Trinity in the work of redemption. And we, we uh, see that in, in so many places, but we see it really in the, even in the first chapter of Ephesians. And Pastor Travis has been uh, highlighting that in a bunch of his teachings on, uh, on the, in the morning prayer time. So we needed the revelation to see the whole picture of redemption. So I found these four statements in the Holman Bible's dictionary. I just kind of to, to keep on with that just a little bit, but I want to give these to you. These are four statements I think are help clarify and summarize the, the part, this part of the study, and then we'll move on to the other things. Number one, these are things that, that are just, you know, help us to continue to understand, which is a hard thing to, to do. It's hard to understand, but there are some things that are hard to understand, but God reveals them to us if, we, if we're persistent in study. But God is one. That's the first thing. We, the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. His offer of salvation in the Old Testament receives a fuller revelation in the New Testament in a way that is not different but more complete. The doctrine of the Trinity does not abandon the monotheistic faith of Israel. And then God has three, number two statement is, uh, God has three distinct ways of being in the redemptive event, yet he remains in undivided unity. That God the Father imparts himself to mankind through the Son and the Spirit without ceasing to be himself is at the very heart of the Christian faith. A compromise in the absolute sameness of the Godhead or the true diversity reduces the reality of salvation. And number three, the primary way of grasping the concept of the Trinity is through the threefold participation in salvation. The approach of the New Testament is not to discuss the essence of the Godhead, but the particular respect, aspects of the revelatory event that includes the definitive, definitive presence of the Father in the person of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. And like I said, go back and read Ephesians uh, chapter 1, and that gives you a, a lot more insight into that as Paul writes 
to the church at Ephesus. And then number four, <clears throat> the doctrine of the Trinity is an absolute mystery. It is primarily known not through speculation, but through the act of grace, through personal faith. In other words, our relationship with Jesus Christ. And Mark 4.11 highlights that um, particular thing about mystery. Mark 4.11 says, and he said to them, to you, as he's talking to his disciples, is to you has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables. And so that word mystery is actually the Greek word mysterion. It means something previously hidden, not fully revealed, or as we condensed it kind of down to concealed truth, divinely revealed. So that was, I just wanted to give that to you. You can take those back, and if you you know need further understanding of the Trinity, maybe that will help you a little bit as we move on, okay? So we're going to move on to the deity and humanity of Jesus. just took us three lessons to get here, but here we are to study the deity and humanity of Jesus and the very significance of each. And I'll tell you right now, we're not going to get done with that tonight, but, but we'll, we'll get in, we'll, we'll go further. I mean, it's just, this is a, hey, is there any subject bigger than the deity and humanity of Jesus? Is there anything bigger that in your life than, than Jesus? Shouldn't be. So once again, here's what we believe at AOL. This is in our belief statements. We believe that Jesus Christ, Son of God, second person of the Trinity, is eternal in existence and is the Word of God become flesh as is stated in the Gospel of John chapter 1, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now, we'll get to the Virgin Mary and what we believe about the virgin birth uh, real soon. We believe that Jesus is indeed fully God and fully human, that he lived his entire life on the earth without sin to become the substitutionary blood atonement or sacrifice for all of man by suffering the agonizing and humiliating death on the cross. So in lesson two, I used a, a terminology that describes this concept of the Son of God, fully God and fully human, and the word was the hypostatic union. Uh, I know that probably went right over the top of your heads. It does, did mine too. And, but this is probably a term you'll never use or probably see outside of the in-depth Bible study or Bible college, but you need to have an exposure to it so you'll be aware if it's ever brought up. Probably won't ever be brought up, but at least you'll be aware of it. You'll have more knowledge of that than the man on the street will, okay? So the meaning of the hypostatic union. Now, don't let that throw you off and say, man, what are we getting into this so deep and everything like that? It is, it is deep, but as we go through here, I'll see, I think you'll see how, it, uh, how meaningful it is uh, to the whole concept of uh, the Son of God, fully God, and fully human. The hypostatic union is a term used to describe how God the Son, Jesus Christ, took on a human nature, yet remained fully God at the same time. Jesus always has been God. John 8, 58 says, and he was talking to, the, to them, he said, when he was giving one of his uh, sermons, he said, Jesus said to them, most surely I say to you before, this was actually when he was talking to the Pharisees, and he said, most surely I say to you before Abraham was, I am. And, you know, we've had a, a Bible study on the I am and what that means. But there he's saying right there before. And the Jews knew fully what he was saying when he said, before Abraham was, I am. Because they knew what he was saying. And, of course, they wanted to stone him for blasphemy at that time. And then John 10, 30, 10 verse 30, he says, he said the same thing. And I think Jesus knew what he was saying. He was saying these things to the, to the, the, to the leadership because it just, irritates the heck out of them, you know. They just, they didn't believe in him and they weren't going to believe in him. But anyway, when he said these things, he knows how they were going to react. And he said, I and my father are one. And that's another thing 
that he wanted to do. I'm sure they wanted to stone him up and, uh, because of blasphemy at the time. So he's always been, he's always been God. Uh, in, in Finest Dake's book, The God's Plan for Man, Brother Dake makes this statement in his study, Lesson 21, The Truth About Jesus Christ. And I thought it was appropriate to put it in, in here. The Bible, this is what he says. The Bible declares that the person we now know as Jesus Christ was one of the three divine persons of the deity, no doubted by me as Trinity or Godhead, like we talked about before, and that as God, he had no beginning. It is this time before he became man that we refer to as his pre-existence. Technically, there is no such thing as existence before him as God, but he existed before he became a man. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go through here. Micah 5.12, just some supporting scriptures for that. Micah 5, uh, 5 verses 1 and 2 says, uh, But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet one of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. So he's talking about the preexistence of Jesus, and this is a we we see this read a lot during the time when we're talking about uh, things about during Christmas time. See, Jesus came from everlasting, but at the incarnation, at the incarnation, he became a human being. And the best, I think, one of the best verses to to see that in, or two verses to see that in, is in uh, John one verses one and fourteen, where it says, and y'all know this probably know this one by heart. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the word became flesh, in verse 14, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. See, we're talking about the word, and here, in this, in this scripture here too, it's capitalized, so it's saying Jesus is the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So it's saying the same thing as he said in those other previous verses. The addition of the human nature to the divine nature gives us Jesus, the God-man. This is the hypostatic union. Jesus Christ, one person, two natures, fully God and fully man. Hypostatic is derived from the Greek word hypostasis, which basically means to possess, to stand under a guaranteed agreement, such as a title deed, be established, a standing or a position, used also as confidence and assurance. For the believer, hypostasis, which basically means title of possession, is the Lord's guarantee to fulfill the faith he births in all of us at the time of our new birth. Isn't that good? When you think about that, when you think about that word and the, and the, and, and the God-man right there, it's a guarantee. It's like a pledge to you. It's a guarantee that he's going to fulfill in all of us at the, 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 the faith he births in all of us. This is our assurance and confidence that because of this union of God and man, the incarnation, God is able to do and will do all that he says he will do for those who seek him and find him. You can verify that in, in Hebrews 11.1 1, uh, and 11.6. And 11.1, 1, of course, is uh, now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of uh, things not, not seen. So that's another place where you, you can see that same, what we're, what we're talking about is that is a substance. We're talking about the substance, and faith is the substance. So keep that in mind. Hypostatic union can mean this, if you want to just put it in a paraphrased, kind of a capsulized, summarized uh, uh, explanation. It's an established, hypostatic union is an established position of assurance and confidence with a firm foundation. 
Now soak that up just a little bit and think about that. You know, what, that's what our faith is. It's a, it, it's, a, it's a position of assurance and confidence with a firm foundation. That firm foundation is what Jesus did for us. So when we think about that, we can have assurance and confidence in that firm foundation. It's that position. And so the hypostatic union is pointing to the one that is that uh, uh, position of assurance and confidence. So here are a few, few places in scriptures where this, in scripture where this uh, exact Greek word hypostasis is used, Hebrews 1.3. And there are several in, uh, uh, versions here I, I want to read, but this is, the first one is the New American Standard Bible, Hebrews 1.3, and, and it says, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the, words of his, by the word of his power. That exact representation is the word uh, hypostasis. In, in the New King James Version, it's interpreted this way. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he, he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then in the Amplified uh, Bible, this is what it says. The, the sun is the radiance and only expression of the glory of our awesome God reflected reflecting God's Shekinah glory, the light being the brilliant light of the divine and the exact representation and perfect imprint of his Father's essence and upholding and maintaining and propelling all things, the entire physical and spiritual universe by his powerful word, carrying the universe along to its predetermined goal. When he himself and no other, he himself and no other, had by offering himself on the cross as a sacrifice for sin, accomplished purification from sins, and established our freedom from guilt. He sat down revealing his completed work at the right hand of the majesty on high, revealing his divine authority. And then, of course, uh, like I said earlier, that uh, verse in Hebrews 11, uh, 1, in the Amplified, it says, Now faith is the assurance, uh, title deed, or confirmation of things hoped for, divinely guaranteed, and the evidence of things not seen, the conviction of their reality. Faith comprehends this fact that that what cannot be experienced by the physical senses. Isn't that good when you think about that word and what that hypostatic union is and the, and the foundation, the firm foundation that we have? It's, it's the Shekinah glory of God, but it's also manifested in a man, uh, a human being in this, in this sense. So Jesus' two natures, human and divine, are inseparable. Jesus will forever be the God-man, Fully God and fully human, two distinct natures in one person, Jesus' humanity and divinity are not mixed, but are united without loss of separate identity. He is 100% God and also 100% human. It's not like it's like you took 50% God and 50% human and poured it into the mold, and there you have Jesus. It's not that way. It's 100% of both, and that's part of the mystery of the hypostatic union. Jesus sometimes operated within the limitations of humanity. In John 4, 6, uh, you remember the, the, uh, this story and account very well. Now, it's, it's at Jacob's well. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It's about the sixth hour. In other words, he was, he was, this, this, what this is saying is he was wearied from his journey. So he was human. You know, he got tired. And then John 19, 28, which uh, talk is, you know, we're talking about when he was crucified. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were accomplished, uh, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Remember that 
passage, and he says, I thirst, because he's on the cross. He's, he's suffering. He's suffered all that pain and everything like that, and he's, he's thirsty. You know, so he's operating in the limitations, within the limitation of humanity. But at the other times, he operated fully in the power of deity. And I could, there's scriptures, I mean, I could put, we could put probably 20 or 30 scriptures in there and say the same thing that shows these things. These are just a couple of samples. John 11:43, talking about the power in operating fully in the power of his deity. John 11:43 says, Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. This was when he raised Lazarus from the dead after four days it being in the grave. So there, he, right there, he, he, he raised people from the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And then the story in Matthew 14, 18 through 21, about the uh, feeding the, the, uh, with the five loaves and, and uh, two fish. He said, he said, bring them here to me, talking about what, what they had. And then he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they ate and were filled, and they took up 12 uh, baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides the women and children. So you can imagine, he, I mean, he blessed, he blessed it, he broke it, and he fed 5,000 men, but with the families there, there was probably 15 or 20,000, at least that many people there uh, with families and everything. So that's a lot of people for five loaves and two fish. And if you don't think that's a, a, a work of God, then that just don't happen every day. As we can see in both scriptures' examples, Jesus' Jesus' actions were from his one person. Jesus had two natures, but only one personality. The doctrine of the hypostatic union is an attempt to explain how Jesus could be both God and man at the same time. It is ultimately, though, a doctrine we are incapable, except by faith, of fully understanding. It is impossible for us to fully understand how God works. And as we said in the previous study, we as human beings in our finite minds should, be, should not expect to, to totally comprehend an infinite God. You know, it says in Isaiah, his ways are higher than our ways and his, his um, uh, thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Thank you, Pastor. Yeah, so I mean, there's, if we think we know just a, we don't even know a portion of, of uh, how great God is and all the things that he's done for us. Jesus is God's son in that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, Luke 135. And we'll, we'll read this during Christmas time. This is a very favorite and familiar passage. But this is the part where he's talking about the conception. And the, and the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, talking to Mary, will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. So he was conceived through Mary by the, by the Holy Spirit. He was born into humanity, but does that, that does not mean that Jesus did not exist before he was conceived. Now, the reason I say that is because, in the, like we talked about in, the, uh, in, the, in the talking about the different uh, uh, cults and what they believe and things like that, the, the oneness cult that I talked about, you know, the ones that are, that, that are they're called the oneness belief system, I think they're the universe, uh, universal uh, Pentecostals or whatever, they broke off from the assembly of God a long time ago, but they believe that Jesus, uh, that God is not a trinity, they don't believe in the trinity, they believe as God existed in three different modes, so he existed first as God the Father, then he existed as Jesus the Son, and he, after that he become Jesus the Holy Spirit, or that's what they call the oneness doctrine. And so I said that because he, that does not mean that Jesus, so in other words, according to them, 
Jesus did not exist before the birth, uh, the the uh, uh, immaculate conception, or however you want to call it, the the, the uh, uh, birth of Jesus through Mary. That's that's their their doctrine, but he did. Jesus has always existed. When Jesus was conceived, he became a human being in addition to being God. In other words, Jesus always existed in the Trinity, but he took on his human nature and his human fleshly body when he was born uh, to Mary on earth. Jesus is both God and man. Jesus has always been God. He has always been the Son of God, but he did not become a human being until he was conceived in Mary. Jesus became a human being in order to identify with us in our struggles, trials, and weaknesses, and to become our way of reconciliation and restoration to God. And many more things, but these are just a couple, these are a few things. But we see that in, in Hebrews uh, 2, uh, verse 17. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, talking about humans, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation, that's another big word, and not used very often, and it's not even used very often in the Bible. Matter of fact, there's only a couple of places where it's actually interpreted, depending on which interpretation or translation you use, but propitiation, it's a great word. It's the appeasement of divine wrath by a sacrificial offering, mercy seat, or a covering of sin. You can also look at three, and we'll see this here in just a minute, these two verses, three, uh, Romans 3, verses 25 through 26, and 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. So we just need to spend a few moments on this issue of propitiation before moving on because it's very important to understanding the purpose of the two natures, this hypostatic union of Jesus. So I'm going to use an excerpt from the previous Bible school lesson on the wilderness tab tabernacle. Do you all remember that? How many was here for that? I mean, I don't know how many. A few of you were. So, it, I mean, this happened a couple of years ago back in December of 2020. So in this lesson, we were in the process of describing uh, the, vast, the, the last of the various furnishings of the wilderness tabernacle and how, how they were all, uh, all of those furnishes, furnishings. You know, we, we went through the whole lesson about the, the, the wilderness tabernacle when the, when the Israelites left um, Egypt and God commanded them to build a tabernacle and, and all the things, you know, all from, the, from the post where the, the courtyard was surrounded with, to the cloth that was actually in there, to the colors of the gate, to the way the posts were made, to the, to the posts that were made out of acacia wood and covered with gold and set in sockets of silver and all that kind of stuff. And this lesson, this is in lesson 10, I believe, of, of the Wilderness Tabernacle and how they were all, we, so we, all of those were pictures and types and shadows pointing to Jesus. Everything in the wilderness tabernacle pointed to Jesus. Go back, and I encourage you to go back, and, and it's on it's on our uh, website, so you can go back and look at all of those. But it's a very interesting study if you want to go back and look at that and and uh, get some more uh, detail in that. But <clears throat> so previous to this excerpt or this part of the lesson, the Ark of the Covenant was described in this lesson. Now we are describing to the mercy seat, and I wanted to talk to you about that because this is what. Uh, propitiation, actually, part of its definition is mercy seat. The scripture reference on this is, you can go back in Exodus 25 and see it, uh, 17 through uh, 22, and you can read it on your own later. The mercy seat was the lid or the covering of the pure gold of pure gold over the Ark of the Covenant. <clears throat> the mercy seat 
was the same length and width as the ark, 47 inches long, 27 inches wide. And at each end of the mercy seat and of one piece with it, in other words, the mercy seat was solid gold of one piece. It was made out of gold. The whole thing was they beat it out of a, a solid piece of gold. All of it was one piece. It was not like two or three pieces put together. But at, And so of one piece with it were two hammered gold cherubim uh, facing one another. Their outstretched wings overshadowed the gold lid, and their faces constantly looked upon it. They were symbols of the presence and holiness of the Lord, the protectors, of his holiness. Now, this is important for you to understand what we're talking about here. The mercy seat, it says, they were the angels, the two symbols of, of cherubim over the, I wish that I should have brought a picture to put it in there, but they, you, you've seen the picture of the, of the Ark of the Covenant, or if you watched uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you can see a picture of it there, you know, that's, that was a picture of it there. But anyway, it's two angels, uh, two cherubim facing each other with their wings over, over the mercy seat that that part that they're over that they're looking into both of them are looking in the same direction what they're looking into is the is the in between right there and that's the mercy seat we'll see what it means a little farther but something to know about the cherubim and why they were made uh were gold cherubim the cherubim were a special group of angels that uh were the protectors what they were called is the protectors of god's presence in other words they were the ones that were closer to God than any of them, and they were the ones that were probably the warriors of the uh, of the uh, uh, angel uh, class. And so, cherubim are what they call symbolic of God's presence, and that's what the, what you see right there. You know, they couldn't make an image of God because it was it, God said there was you know that's part of His law: do not make any go, any uh, uh, graven images of me. But so when the people knew that the, that cherubim were there, they were seeing that. What that meant was they were protectors of the presence of God. Matter of fact, in the Garden of Eden, when uh, man, uh, Adam and Eve, Eve were driven out of the garden because of sin, uh, he put, he stationed cherubim at the east gate of the, of the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword so nobody could come in. So they were protected because the Garden of Eden was actually the symbol of where God, God's presence was in the earth. Remember, in, the, in Scripture it says that God came down and he walked in the cool of the earth, a uh, cool of the day uh, in the garden. So they're known as gatekeepers. So it's just that's just something, just a side note uh, that you need to know. What the, but they're, what we're talking about, they're symbols of presence and holiness of God, the protectors of his holiness. The word mercy seat is translated from the Hebrew word kaporeth, which means a place of covering for sin. The English equivalent or best conveyance of the idea is propitiatory, meaning making a propitiation or sin or to appease or make provision for the payment of sin or to make provision or appease the wrath of God is another way of putting it. On the Day of Atonement, we, we studied this when we, we talked about the uh, seven feasts of Israel. On the day, or the seven feasts of the Lord, on the Day of the Atonement, the high priest Aaron would enter the Holy of Holies with the blood of a bull for atonement for himself, the blood of the sacrificed lamb or kid goat, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, seven times before the seat and seven times on the seat. In other words, right there on the mercy seat, right between uh, the cherubim. And so doing, he was making atonement for the sins of the nation of Israel, two handfuls of incense to burn in the censer to shield him from God. In other words, you read that part, that incense means he took, he took a, a censer in there that had coals of fire in there. He took the incense with him, and in order just so he wouldn't look at the presence of God or look at the spot where the presence of God was represent, represented, he put the incense on top of the coals and the incense 
uh, would make a cloud and shield him from the presence of God so he wouldn't die. Another side note. This mercy seat was God's throne, the place of his presence and the place of his judgment. God is holy and the justice of heaven demands that sin, the breaking of God's law, had to be punished. But God, who is love and full of mercy, made provision for forgiveness of sin. This forgiveness took place on the mercy seat where propitiation, the appeasement of divine wrath by sacrificial offering, was made for sin. See that, like I said earlier, Aaron would enter the Holy of Holies, and that was only done once, in a, once a year on that very day of atonement that he had to do that, where uh, so is the propitiation was made for sin. Several verses that point to Jesus here are, and talking about this, and, and how it relates to Jesus as being our propitiation, Romans 3.25, of whom, uh, whom God set forth, and he's talking about uh, Jesus there. You might be, should have put verse 24 in there, but let's just look at that right quick at verse 24 uh, before that. And I'll read it to you. You don't have to read it, or you can look it up if you're faster than I am. But uh, verse, just so you understand the 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 progression of the of the scripture right there. He said in verse 24, he says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. So what it's saying right there, that word propitiation is actually uh, uh, interpreted or comes from the uh, word and it's the same thing as when you say that is mercy seat. So God set forth as a mercy seat by his blood. You could say that in that scripture if you wanted to put it in there. Or in 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, uh, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And then we go to John 4, uh, verse 10, 1 John 4, 4, 10. And it says, in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be in, be the propitiation for our sins. See, what that says right there, it says, in, the, in, the, in this is love, not that we loved God. In other words, we didn't love God first, and then he did this work for us. It says right here, but had he loved us first and sent his son to be the propitiation or the mercy seat or the go-between or the uh, place of uh, appeasement of his wrath. So he, it, remember John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He didn't wait for us to come and get right he, or to ask for it. He sent it because he loved us. So what that means is that he is the one that originated or instigated the, uh, the, uh, the mercy seat uh, concept right there. So by means of the atoning death of Christ, God can legally be merciful to the sinner who believes in him, and reconciliation, the reestablishment of right relationship with him, can be affected. Remember the law, the Ten Commandments, God's moral code. Code. They were inside the 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 uh, the actual Ten Commandment tablets were inside the Ark of the Covenant, and the mercy seat was on top of that. The mercy seat covered the Ark, and it was the only thing that was between the Israelites and the provisions of the law, which declared penalty of death if it were broken. The blood sprinkled on the mercy seat was the forgiveness and covering for this penalty of sin. This had to be done year after year per the old covenant on the day of atonement. We are now under the new covenant of Jesus' blood, a better way, 
You can see that in Luke 22, 20, where likewise he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So we're now under the new covenant. Thank God for that, right? Praise the Lord. Uh, but so Jesus, so in Hebrews, let's read what it says in Hebrews 7, uh, verses 26 and 27. We're still talking about the propitiation and, and, the, and uh, what Jesus, as the, as the uh, hypostatic union, the, the God-man, the fully God and fully human, what, his, what he's doing in this, in this role. For such a high priest was, befitting, was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Verse 27 says, who does not need daily as those, high, as those high priests, talking about the former high priest of the, of the old covenant, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. See, in, in just that short place right there, what we see, and I hope you can see this, but one of the things we need to see as far as what Jesus is talking about right there is we see wrapped up as him on the cross, that's the mercy seat. That's the new mercy seat we're talking about on the cross. When we say about the mercy seat on, in the Ark of the Covenant, which uh, is, is no longer available, and whether it's hidden or where it is, but the cross is the mercy seat. Jesus is the mercy seat. So all at once, when he died on the cross, he became the place of God's presence, just like the mercy seat. He became the high priest of our confession, on the cross, and then he was the perfect sacrifice on the cross. All of those things wrapped up, he became the mercy seat. The mercy seat foreshadows the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our mercy seat. He forever stands between a holy God and sinful man. He is our intercessor and our advocate, the high priest of our confession. Just as the sins of the whole nation were atoned for by the sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat, so also Christ, by the shedding of his own blood, atoned for the sins of the entire world. And that's what was written in that, uh, that, just that, that lesson before. And I thought that would help. I hope that helped clarify what we're talking about when we're talking about mercy seat, when we're talking about propitiation. When you run across that propitiation in your Bible, just write across there, mercy seat. It'll help you understand. I mean, right to the side. Notes on there. You can write in your Bible, right in the side right there, and it says, this means mercy seat. God, Jesus was our mercy seat. Write that on there. It'll help you understand when that big word comes along. You'll say, Jesus was our mercy seat. And he only could do that because he had to become a human to do that. He had to become fully human. Uh, this is most important, that he became a flesh and, flesh and blood man so that he could be the one and only perfect sacrifice to willingly and obediently die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Philippians 2, uh, verses 5 through 9. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being born in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance, in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And we'll talk about this. I'm gonna, that particular scripture we will talk about, but that that tells you every, uh, just about everything you need to know about what, what he did, even to the point of death, even the, the, uh, the death on the cross. So in summary, when we're talking about the hypostatic union teaches that Jesus is both hu fully human and fully divine, that there is no mixture or dilution of either nature, and that he is one united person forever. Right now at this moment, there is a flesh and blood person sitting. His name is Jesus 
sitting at the right hand of the Father, the man Christ Jesus, interceding and mediating on our behalf. Aren't you thankful for that when you think about that? He's, 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 the, he's the go-between between us and God. And when he looks at us and when God looks at us, he sees the blood of Jesus. He doesn't see uh, our sins as, as if we're born again. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5 through 6, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. I, in, in the New King James Version, is one of the few that actually uh, capitalizes man, and I believe that is because he is the God-man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So in this verse, we have another very profound scripture showcasing the individuality and the purpose of the hypostatic or hypostasis, hypostatic union, the person the man, Christ Jesus, fully God, fully man, the one and only God-man. And I just wish everybody would just take a moment, just soak that up. You think about what, what that actually means. Soak about it. Soak it up in your mind because it's, it's almost too much to comprehend. You know, when you think about God coming down to be a man and dying on the cross for us, what a great, what a great, I mean, who would have ever thought, who would have ever come up with that? Only, only God's mind could have come up with that concept to, uh, to reestablish our relationship with him. This is another uh, paragraph out of God's Plan for Man by Finest Day. It was not only important that, w- that he have two natures, uh, divine, human and divine for the sake of man, but also for the sake of God to be a true mediator between God and man. His twofold nature gives him fellowship with both parties and capability of rep- representing both to reconcile both. As God, he can uphold the dignity of deity, and as man, he can be truly sympathetic and meet the needs of man. And see, when we're talking about this, this other word, reconciliation, reconciliation is the process by which God and man are brought together again uh, through the blood of Jesus. We, uh, it, it says this in 2 Corinthians 5.18 that uh, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, we have been reconciled to God. Now it's our ministry to have the reconciliation to other men. Remember I told you that you know our relationship with God is horizontal, but then we have a, I mean, uh, vertical, but we have a horizontal relationship with every other man. That's the reconciliation ministry that we have. So, that's, so we're reconciled with God. Uh, through Jesus, the God-man, we have reconciliation through his blood. In this divine plan of reconciliation, we have both grace and mercy. And you, uh, re, uh, you can turn in your Bibles if you want to, but I'll read it to you. I want to read Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, and, and see if you see mercy and grace. I know you will. But this is, uh, read, this is what it says, verse 4 of uh, Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's a great passage right there. You ought to, I mean, pastor's been going over Ephesians, and Ephesians has got so much stuff in there. It's just, we ought to read it and memorize it every time, every chance. But you, you, then you go down further from four and five right there, and you get the 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 uh, great passages that we have about uh, in, in eight through 10 about for by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. But I'll close with this. Grace, grace declares us not guilty. Mercy declares that God's wrath and justice are satisfi- satisfied. Grace provides to me what I don't deserve. Mercy protects me from what I do deserve. Does it get any better than that? Hallelujah. That's great, isn't it? Grace and mercy. 2 Corinthians 5.18.
I'm, I'm sorry, I might have said that. Okay, so I just wanted to show you what the, what the you know, the hypostatic union, what the, the God-man, Jesus, fully human and fully divine, uh, shows for us there today. And next time, we'll get into other scriptures about uh, the humanity, the, the more of the humanity, more of the, the deity part of it, the scriptures that support that. And uh, also, I wanted to discuss that one uh, scripture in, in uh, the one I talked about previously. Uh, uh, we'll get into it a little bit more. It's because how uh, Jesus... Um, I've lost it now. I don't know where it's at. Oh, yeah, there it is. Philippians 2, 5 through 9. We'll, we'll get into a little bit more of that next time uh, we get next, next week, I suppose. All right? If y'all get anything out of that tonight, I hope it wasn't. I mean, you know, if it goes over your head as far as the hypostatic union, don't, I don't blame you. It's, uh, don't worry about it. I just, it's just you've been exposed to it. Now you've heard it, and you know the things that, uh, what, it, what it means. So uh, go from there, and, and if anybody says, well, it, it basically means that, that uh, it was uh, God united with humanity in the form uh, and manifested in the form of Jesus and that's who our Savior is. He is the God-man, right? All right. All right, well, let's close with prayer, and we'll pray over the offering tonight. Miss Bonnie has reminded me. All right? All right. Father, we just thank you for, the, thank you for your word, Father, how it, how it reveals so much stuff to us each and every time we get together. And, Father, I just pray that we pay attention to what it's pointing us to. It's pointing us to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the God-man, the one and only, uh, Savior of all mankind, Father, and we thank you for that, Father. We worship and praise you for your goodness and mercy that you've shown us, the grace and mercy that you've shown us through Jesus and the blood that was shed for us, Father, and help us to know and to be able to use that, and as we as we are able to share the hope that was that is within us, and as these times come about when Christianity is under such a great attack and we have the opportunity to contend for the faith when we uh, fight for the things that we believe in, Father, Holy Spirit, give us the the ability to recall these things and to, to, to share with someone what we know about Jesus and how great he really is and how great your plan of redemption has been for us. Father, we, we pray over each person here tonight. Father, we pray over the uh, offering, the tithes and offerings that are given tonight. We ask blessings upon them that they would increase to the giver and increase the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us. We want to thank all of you who give to our ministries here at AOL Church. It's because of you that all of this is possible. You can give now by clicking the link below. And if you haven't already, subscribe and share this message. It helps us reach more people and share the gospel through you. Be sure to stay connected to us through our Church Center app, our website, arenaoflifechurch.org, and follow us on social media like Facebook and Instagram. May the Lord bless you and keep you. His face shine upon you, be gracious to you, and give you peace. Thanks again for listening. Go and make a difference today.